Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast on planet Earth, proudly brought to you each and every week by Caffeine Gum Australia. For those of you who do not know, Caffeine Gum Australia is a company that Kate and I own. It is a product that I first discovered during my brief stint in Melbourne in 2015. Uh, now, what it is, is a caffeinated chewing gum. It has 100 milligrams of caffeine per piece. It comes in three incredible flavors, and it is batch-tested. And currently, at last count, we've been used in AFL, Super Rugby, NRL, AFLW, NRLW, and the Gillaroos are using it. Um, professional Sevens teams are using it. Professional Cricket teams are using it. So we're starting to get out there. If you want to support the podcast, please feel free to check it out. It's at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. All right, guys, we've got Mick Byrne on the podcast. It was awesome. Absolutely awesome to sit down and talk to him uh, through the magic of Zoom, which was incredible. I learned so much in this conversation. So Mick's had a fascinating and incredibly interesting coaching career Obviously, as obviously during his playing career, he was an AFL player, uh, playing for Melbourne, Hawthorne, Sydney. I believe he also coached in the AFL as well. Uh, he did say during the podcast, I think he might have been a head coach in the AFL. Uh, he then jumped over to rugby, being a skills coach for Leinster, Scotland, the All Blacks during their run from 2005 to 2015. Uh, just listening to some of the insights he gave you know, during his time with the All Blacks, working with some of the greatest players and coaches of all time. And um, give, he gave plenty of insight into what makes those guys special, which is worth the listen alone. Um, then he, he went on to be a skills coach for the Wallabies. And now he's, his present-day job is working for the Fiji and Drua. So uh, open, honest, thoughtful, insightful. Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff during this podcast and... You know, I think I say this every single week, but this was one of my favorite podcasts by far. And I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mr. Mick Byrne. Okay, Mick, thanks very much for doing this, mate. I've been very excited to talk to you and very grateful for your time. Firstly, and most importantly, mate, how are you? Where are you? And have, have you enjoyed a bit of a break since the end of Super Rugby season? Yeah, look, um, yeah, I'm good. Thanks, mate. It's great to catch up. And uh, I'm uh, currently in Fiji. So I'm, I moved over here in July. And uh, um, I had a bit of a break post Super Rugby, just a few weeks uh, back home in Oz. And then uh, headed back here to set us up. You know, it's our first, first time back at home. We spent last year overseas, so in Australia. So got back in July. And the boys have been sort of training just in the gym and in their in their home bases. And then we came in full time about three weeks ago. So it's been good. Nice mate. How was the last year for you? Obviously uh chaos all over the world with COVID and the pandemic and trying to keep sport going. I, I know that the Fijian Drua boys and the the team and management had to sacrifice a lot last year. What what was it like? Where were you based? How did you go about attacking everything because basically starting a new team from scratch is incredibly difficult on its own but then you throw in all the challenges of the last couple of years 
Can you summarize or, or talk about what the experience was like? Yeah, look, I'd, I'm not sure I can put put it into a few enough words, but uh, I think we, we started basically, well, I think, three weeks after we put a team together. Um, we had to relocate into Lennox Head out at New South Wales. Beautiful area there. Not a bad um, spot. Great spot. And the facility there. Um, Were you at Lake Ainsworth? Yeah, Lake, Lake Ainsworth facility is awesome. Yeah. And the, the staff there couldn't do more for us. But we, you know, basically starting from scratch, we came together and day one we were training. So we didn't have a chance for planning or or anything. We just got into it. And, uh, yeah, I was, we brought a whole lot of players from all different areas, from the island, from overseas, Australia, New Zealand, the UK. Um, off the island and you know some of our players you know, probably 60 percent of our players off the island hadn't done anything since october 2020 so it was nearly 12 months it was just on 12 months i hadn't done anything so you can imagine the shape they were in when we got them and you know it was uh it was a real challenge uh whole all new staff working together all players working together for the first time but having to get on with it day one and just you know i think that was a you know, it was a good thing in a way that we just had to get on and do with it. But we made we made some 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 errors at the beginning there around certain things, but uh, we learned on the run and we adjusted pretty quickly. What did you learn on the run, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I think I, I learned a little bit more around um, educating versus expecting. Um, you, you know, I think when you come into into a role like this, you you know where you want the team to be and um probably for me it was just a matter of taking a you know maybe take slowing down a bit and and starting a, a fresh you know with a bit more education and understanding about why we need to do things rather than expecting everybody including all the staff to know why why are we doing this you know and it was just a matter of of starting it was a good it was a good learning curve again go back and uh, revisit some of the principles that you have in your coaching is you know why what how and probably jump straight into the what in a in a not desperate but in a in an excited way to get stuck into it you know we just got stuck into the what's and probably hadn't explained enough about why we were doing stuff was it was a little bit of that like oh, i know some of the guys in the team your joe tamani's and your is so Silas. was it a little bit teaching them how to be professional rugby players because i know for some of the guys it was their first experience in a full-time program is that kind of along the lines of what you're referring to there yeah it is definitely along the lines um you know understanding what professionalism means i mean these guys have all all can play rugby and they They've got natural talent for the game. It was probably just how to live like a professional athlete, how to eat like a professional athlete, how to train like a professional athlete. And some of these guys, you know, and the guys you talked about there, you know, it's great to see ice away with the flying Fijians. You know, my understanding is he's starting this weekend against the number one team in the world. He, he so wanted me to be... ask you if he could be captain next year as well. So I've got yeah. to make sure I get yeah. that in. Yeah, no, that's all right. He he can ask. There's no 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 problems with asking. <laughs> there's, there's always if you don't ask, you don't get. Eh? So yeah, exactly you, right. You can always ask. Um, but I think the the challenge for for them was, 
what it looks like to be a professional, you know, to change the diet, to get up the next day and go again. And um, I think their, their understanding about where they were at, you know, so they felt, not those two guys in particular, but a whole team probably felt, you know, we're good rugby players. We know what we do. We can do it really well. And, and we started training and, you know, the, the, probably the results we were getting from them were about a five or a six, maybe four or five out of 10, as far as world rugby or sort of super rugby standards go. But for them, it's probably an eight and a nine. They've trained as hard as they've ever trained, but they were still only really at the standards of, you know, halfway to where we needed them to be. So that was a real challenge for us to, to help them understand they might be training the hardest they've ever trained, but they're still only halfway there. Yeah. Um, and so bringing them along, I think that was what I'm talking about before about the education and learning sort of, um, you know, understanding where, where they think they're at, where they are at and where they want to get to. How did you help them along that path? Cause I, I can imagine it's a funny position to be in ultimately super rugby and, and professional sport is judged on results, but you really have to do that step-by-step process to actually get to where you need to be. Was it a was it a matter of just sitting down with the guys and going, look, your your GPS numbers here are okay, but we need you up here. Was it was it just something that was a gradual process for you and the coaching staff? Yeah, it was it was gradual. Um, I think because we needed to bring them along the road. Like if we if we didn't make it gradual, we could have lost them along the way. But yeah, um, it was also trying to push them because we only, you know, we started in the middle of November and our first game was in February. So, you know, we didn't have time to, to muck around. And, um, you know, if we were too patient or, you know, we sort of were too gradual in the descent, in the, in the ascent, we may not have got to where we needed to get to in time to start playing and be competitive. So yeah, we had to, we had to push through with a little bit of hope that they understand we, we're, we're taking them down the right road and 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 drag them along the way as well as as help them get there so yeah it was a bit of a but what i found made this group of players the most resilient group of players i've ever worked with you know they they don't whinge they don't moan they just get on and do and you know we took them down the sand dunes last week to finish a little block here and you know they did two hours on the sand dunes and you know when you talk about sand dunes and you think about as a kid, you know, in Australia going to the sand dunes, it was a bit of fun, you know. So these sand dunes, uh, you never see anything like it. And not one player was whinging the whole day, you know. They just got on and did. So I think that that part of it was 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 massive for us in, in their ability to just to do the work and just get on and do the work. It was was uh, it was quite um, quite inspiring watching them go through that process. What about some of the off-field stuff like creating a team culture, values, having a team story? Because starting a team from scratch, I'm curious about this uh, for a selfish reason. I've just joined the Hunter Wildfires who have just rejoined the Shoot Shield the last couple of years. How did you attack that as a head coach trying to build, you know, some kind of identity that the team could play from? Yeah, I I sat down. I mean, I've been... I'm a big believer in creating your identity and 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 working through that. And you know, a small number of changes can change that. You know, a small number of 
people coming in, even just one influential person coming in can change a culture. So it's very important that you, you, you can establish something. One of the key things you to try and do is create sort of a culture within a team. And what I found when I started was, was I just started looking at things and working around how I've done stuff in the past. And we, we already had a culture. You know, we 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 had a we had an existing culture that you couldn't you couldn't ask for you couldn't couldn't manufacture if you tried in any environment. So, yeah. you know, we had a, a strong Fijian culture. Um, go back to the village, the roles that the, the people have in a village, um, and we just built off that. And it was about enhancing that. Also, there's a strong connection to faith and family. Um, so it wasn't about trying to create a new culture. It was about there is already an existing culture within this team. What do we need to do to bring it into a professional environment as such? So our values and standards were on-field and off-field were driven by those values of faith and family and, and the cultural aspect. An interesting part was the how we meld the traditional cultures with the performance culture. And, you know, there was a couple of challenges there initially, but um, mainly around, you know, Ratu, a leader in a group, you know, what, what the expectations the are around that, the chief, you know, and understand that we're all chiefs or we're all warriors, no matter where we are when, we, when we're in the Indra environment, we're all the same, whether we're all leaders or we're all chiefs, we're all warriors, it doesn't matter, we are all together. Um, and that was a strong, that was strong as well. Um, you know, it was then, then it was just adding, adding some professional standards in there so that we could adhere to those to get the best out of everybody. Um, you know, I don't think some of the players understood the professional side of the game, you know, what it takes to yeah. be able to get up and go again. And, you know, in the past, maybe, you know, the partying, the, going out late, um, the, the different foods, the different drinking, whatever that was, and then being able to get up and get on with either the rugby at your club level that you're at, you can't do that anymore. You're going to get left behind. And, you know, that was some of the standards that we, we built into our, into our cultural, you know, our values and standards. Did, did you find it challenging? Or Challenging is probably not the right word, but how did you attack it? Obviously, you're an Australian You've gone into a Fijian team, and it's it's a Fijian club team, but it's effectively the Fijian team for all all effects and purposes. And I've got a lot of Fijian friends; they're all wonderful characters, and I love them all very much. But it's definitely a different culture from the Australian culture. A lot of positives out there, definitely. How did you how did you attack that? Did you have to learn the Fijian way? Did you kind of mold some of yourself to that? Or, or was it kind of trying to meet in the middle a little bit? Yeah, that's a good question. Good, good uh, observations. I think, you know, I heard um, Nathar Thawani Booker, who's was with the Olympic team. Um, he's he's basically a he's our S and C, our head of athletic performance, but he's also culturally very strong, and he runs our lotu, our our prayer. And I sort of lent on him a lot around what should I be doing here or how should I be here? And 
they just wanted me to be a leader. You know, they wanted to know that it didn't matter what race it was. I had to, you know, you just have to portray the leadership that they're looking for, you know, and they just need a direction and probably the errors I, you know, like there was a balancing act between being coming down on them and um, in the discipline areas and, and forcing them through without losing them through, you know, intimidation or fear or, or things like that. So, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a balancing act. And as you say, you, you know, quite a, a lot of them and I've coached quite a few of them in the past and, you know, the, to have a whole lot of, you know, to have 37 Fijian guys on the training field at the one time, you've got to, you've got to allow it to happen. You know, um, you're going to see some things that you just not used to seeing on a rugby field and you've got to let that happen. And you, you just got to throw your hands in the air and go, wow, what just happened then? You know, just, and, and accept that this is, this is life. Um, but at the same time, not, not abdicating the, the game plan to them but certainly giving them some freedoms to, to express themselves. One thing I've noticed over the last couple of years watching the Fijian national team, and, and I do a lot of highlight reels for a living, so I've got to see some of the forward play. And I remember when I was a kid, every, every Fijian guy I knew wanted to play on the wing, whether they were 145 kilos or you know 85 kilos. But it seems like the standard of forward play has, has improved dramatically, dramatically. Is that something with the drawer that you spent a lot of time focusing on that specific set piece role within your team? Yeah, I think like one of the things that I, when I came into rugby, I had my own little thoughts on the game um, because when I, you know, when I came into the game, I played it all my life, right? So I played rugby and rugby league all through school boys ever since I was six. And then when I left and came back into rugby and I'd spent time in the AFL, one of the key things in the AFL, the game had gone away from if you're a back pocket or a halfback flanker or a, a forward flank or a forward pocket, it didn't matter. Your role was around the ground and you had to become a running player, distribute off both feet, both hands. Yeah, you had to develop skill sets yeah. that maybe only other players in certain positions had. So. If you're a, a back halfback flank, you had to develop the skill sets of a winger because you had to now do a lot more running. Um, you had to distribute more. You had to you had to do a lot more of the not only the defensive side, but you had to be an avenue for attack. So your skill sets needed to improve. And when I came into rugby, I felt back in the the mid '90s when I came into rugby, there was a real you could nearly put a line down the middle of the field. You guys do this. And you guys do that. So the forwards, you just carry the ball, smash it up, clean out, give it to the backs and the backs play. And the backs, you play. Um, and what was happening was I sort of felt that if I could get the forwards to play like the backs and the backs to play like the forwards, then we could actually get a game of rugby going, you know, a decent game. So if I could get the forwards to catch and pass like backs, and backs to clean out like forwards. We could actually keep the ball alive across the field, not just yeah. hit it up, try and get across the game line, throw the ball out to the backs. And, you know, when I joined, you know, there was things like forwards just get out of the way of the backs when they're running, you know, and, and 
and things like that were were common in the game. And so the the areas that probably you had the biggest growth in it was probably the tight five, getting the tight five to catch, carry, run, pass, like like backs. And if you can do that, then you can have some really good options around the, the tight area. You can get you can get tight forwards involved in counter and turnover and all that sort of stuff. Because so that that's always been something that really I really felt where when I came into rugby, we could sort of work on. Um, and now when you come into the, the Fijian side, they've already, like the Fords already, as you say, they already do that. The problem with the things we have to do is be a little bit more conscious of some of the responsibilities around maintaining possession. Um, and, you know, all, all, all our, our players like that. So it's a little bit more technical, but at the same time, you don't want to stifle their willingness to play, but yeah. you've got to also now make sure that they, you know, maintain and respect possession of the ball um, and, and play through there. So it, I think it's, um, there's no question that every Fijian prop's got a back trapped in there somewhere. There's no question. After your first season as a Drua head coach, looking back, what do you what do you believe it takes to be successful at Super Rugby level? Oh, you know how do you put that down? Obviously, you know if you've got a good squad, that's going to help you. But I think fitness is a fitness and strength. You know your your ability to to stay in the game and fight it at the top end. You know, to be able to play at pace, you know, to get around the field at place at pace and to get on and take contact and get up and go again and get hit again and get up and go again and still there and in the 70th or 80th minute of the game, still be able to get across the field from line out scrum as a as a forward pack and and be the first arriving player. Um, and it's a it's a real fitness challenge. Um, yeah, rugby is very important. There's no question you need to be able to play rugby. Um, but the the game now around the fitness and strength components, your ability to to fight in contact, get up off the ground and go again and repeat efforts is massive. And I think the teams that are having the success of the teams that have got themselves in the ability to not only have a good team and good talent, but also to have the ability to... Um, repeat efforts and go again yeah so we're just saying you, you've obviously had a lot of experience at test rugby now as well is there a difference between being successful at test rugby versus being successful at super rugby or is a lot of the same things transferable oh look there's a lot of the same things are transferable um test rugby is is, is a moment though like you, you know they talk about oh you've got always got next week but in test rugby you, you don't really you know like um, you don't really have next week because you know you lose. You, you, next week's just another new another new game. Um, you know the Bledisloe Cup. You, you know you can't lose too many there, and you you can't win the Bledisloe. Um, you know, where in Super Rugby, you, you can get up next week and still it's like English Premiership. Yeah. Um, you know the top fourteen. 
you can have moments where you don't win and then you get up and you go again next week and you've got to get up on Monday and go again. A lot of times with Test Rugby, you, you know you're in there for a three-week window or, a, you know, come a World Cup, you're there for hopefully seven weeks, you know. But, um, you know, World Rugby, the way it is, you, the Rugby Championship now is sort of two weeks on, one week off sort of thing. So you come together for a couple of weeks, you know, so you have these where you can prepare for little blocks of time as an international window, get up, throw everything at it for a couple of weeks, and then you, you, you know you have a week off, or just like like at the moment in the autumn series, you're going to throw everything you can at at a three week or four week test window. Um, so the intensity of your games is is increased probably at international level. But your weekly training intensity, I find, is a, is a lot lot more in in like super rugby. Your training is is constant. The attrition of training, the, the load of training, and all that sort of work is is quite heavy at, at super rugby. Okay, so they back you off a little bit for test week and focus more on detail and and your role within the team, so that you get it spot on on game day. Is that kind yeah. of what you mean? Yeah, I think you know tests tests. Uh, I mean, certainly when I was involved. We did. We still did a lot of building and a lot of teaching and a lot of skills work and and all that. But you you are there for three weeks, you know, and and they are big test matches, you know. At one stage there, I'm, I'm, I'm I'll be pretty sure I'm quoting this right, but you know, when GPS first came in and accelerometers and all that sort of stuff, at one stage there, they told us that Richie McCaw had just survived six car crashes, you know. Uh, the effect on his body. So, you know, test match rugby is 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 at that at that level. You've got all the best players of Super Rugby and are representing New Zealand and, all, and Australia, and they go at each other. It's a like in the English Premiership, you know, and like like it is at the moment this week. You know, the best players from the countries are it's brutal collisions. Um, but I think the attrition of getting up and going every week. Adds adds a weight to it, you know. And I know in the English Premiership, those players, you know, have spent some time there, you know, to get up and go again. That's the real that's the real sense of get up and go again if you're playing in the English Premiership because it, it's a long it's a big year. Yeah, they don't they don't get much break, do they? I think it's like nine or ten months a year, just pretty full on. Yeah, and they've got those they've got a couple of competitions they slip in and out of, so um, it's pretty attritional that that. But yeah, I think the test match rugby, you know, building up for a test match, there's a lot of things that you do um, week to week that are the same. You, you know, you, you know, all your training programs are very similar. But I think the mental side of of the prep is is a little bit more intense coming into a test match because with with your club rugby, if you like, super rugby, English premiership, you you know you know pretty much what you're going to be doing. Each yeah. week is, you know, um, you've got the same band of players you've had for 12 months all sticking together. You know, a lot of times in Test Rugby, there's new players coming in, learning new things. It's, I, I, I enjoy both styles. Um, but, uh, yeah, they are, they are similar, but they also have their little differences. They're a little bit of idiosyncrasies. They're a bit different. What makes someone a great player versus a good player. So you've worked, you just mentioned Richie McCaw, obviously Dan Carter's up there as well. You're Michael Hoopers. What makes them special? 
Oh, um, I know what they do to become special. Um, there's no, there's no coincidence. They do the work. They work harder than anyone else. And that's not taking it away from any player that's out there who works hard. These guys just work harder. Um, they're the last ones on the track. They're really focused in what they're doing. Um, you know, training, like in the, in the programs I've, I've been work, involved in, you know, the team training will finish and, um, and then you'll get into your individual training. So, you know, what we call sort of IPPs, you know, individual performance plans, you'll get into those. And so it might be that you finish training and then the number eights will go away and work on a bit of the back of the scrum play. The hookers will go away and work on some striking. Uh, the wingers might go away and work on a bit of evasion and high ball catch. You know, and everybody goes away and works on their individual parts of their game. Well, when those guys, when training finishes, they don't stand around and chat and waste the 20 minutes by looking busy. They just get on and do. They go and get the ball. They go and get a tackle bag. They go to the coach that they need to coach. They go and they just start doing it. And they work on it with a focus. And it's no coincidence when I started with the Wallabies that the guy that just came over and started, a guy like David Pocock or Michael Hooper, you know, yeah. they just come over and they start. And there, there are other players that'll stand there and they'll they'll be doing some work, but they'll they'll take a few minutes to get going and they'll take a few minutes to wind up to it. And you know, if there's a 20 minute window to work to 20 minutes, they may get 16, 18, 12 minutes of work in. Whereas those guys, they'll get 20 minutes of work in. You know, they'll they'll start straight away. And they'll keep working through. And they'll also have a plan. You know, they'll, they'll know that I today I'm going to work on this and this and this. And some players will finish training. It'll be, right, let's go. Let's break onto our individual plans. And now my role in, in a couple of those environments was to help the players set up those plans. But at the same time, you're sitting down with a player and you say, let's have a look at your weekly plan. What are you going to work on on Monday, Tuesday, what are you going to work on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday? And those guys would have a plan already laid out. They'd know that they're going to do this on this day, this on this day. I'm going to work on this. And their weekly plan would be completely laid out for them. And they just get on and do. Um, and I think that's, you know, they, they get there because they may not necessarily be the most talented player. And in a case like Richie McCaw, his game for his position, I think, changed around three or four times in my time with him. He went from being purely a fetcher to a link player to a, you know, to attack. He had to he had to work on his tackling because, you know, when they first started, he was just a fetcher. He just went in and, you know, then all of a sudden he couldn't be that tackler come fetcher anymore. He had to tackle and release, and he had to probably reinvent his game three or four times. Um, through his career and he just did he just worked on the next thing you know he he became a a key uh, restart receiver for us you know he was the isolated player in the middle of the field um, and so he'd work on that every day uh, they just work on their game and, and as I said it's not taking away from other players but they have a real focus in the way they do it what made the All Blacks or what makes the All Blacks so successful well, I think it helps being the number one sport in the country. You know, um, kids grow up wanting to be 
represent that team. You know, that's you know, it's I know it's an old cliched line, you know, people dream of being an all black, but they do. The kids grow up wanting to be an all black. Um, everywhere you go, rugby's played, there's you know, tremendous coaching going on. Um the players, you know, it's a Kiwi it's a Kiwi thing, you know, they're they're quite um you know, the humility is really strong. They give back to their community. So you'll see a lot of players and I know a lot I know a lot of lot of communities do this. I'm not I'm not saying they're the only ones that do it, but these guys are, are you know, they they're there. You'll see you'll see these players giving back to where they came from, you know, back So they have an attachment. They have an attachment to who they're playing for. Yeah, as, absolutely. In- yeah. They go right back. They go right back to their grassroots and they'll go back and they'll they'll be part of the community when they get back there, you know, and and I think that that just fosters a real um, you know, a, a real passion for the game from young from young players coming through. Um, also, you know, so when I started back there in two oh five, it was, you know, the the individual development aspect that only just started to happen, and they really took to it. They really took to how do I get better. You know, what can I do to get better? And when you're dealing with pretty good rugby players, it's a challenge as a coach. How do you how do you make them better? And so you've got to spend some time and you've got to you've got to know what you're doing. You know, you've got to spend some time on on how am I going to make this player better? And you know, once you once you can do that with them, they'll take to it straight away. You know, they'll be they'll they understand if they're getting value from you. You know, if you're yeah. If you're giving them stuff that works, that makes them better, they'll get value from it. They see that and they'll work away at it. If it doesn't help them, they'll they'll take it on board. They'll say, yeah, but if it doesn't help them, they'll move on to something else. So the real challenge is you've, you've got to continually develop yourself as a coach so that you can make those guys better as well. How do you initially get involved with them? Um, well, probably a bit of a twisted tale, but. Um, I went over to Scotland and I was coaching over in Scotland and I met Todd Blackadder, who was at Edinburgh. And I got to know Todd well and he and I got on well off the field as well as on the field. And he saw what I was doing at the national team and he's, he got me to do a little bit of work with his Edinburgh team and et cetera. And then Steve Hansen was coaching Wales and um, I got to meet Steve obviously coaching and because through Todd I got to meet Steve. Tony Gilbert was coaching the Borders at the time and we sort of got to uh, the end of my time in Scotland. Tony Gilbert came back to Otago and he took on a role with the Otago Rugby Union. Um, I'd finished up at Scotland and was working with Saracens and I just happened to be over in the off-season of the Northern Hemisphere, which was the NPC time in New Zealand. And Tony Tony just sort of rang me up and said, would I be interested in coming over and spending a couple of weeks in New Zealand and working with some of the NPC teams down on the South Island? Because Tony liked what I was doing over there in, in Scotland. So I came out and I worked with Canterbury, Otago and Southland. And I just drove down the the east coast of the South Island and 
did some sessions there um, and organised with Tony. There happened to be a session I did at Canterbury with the All Blacks for training there that day. So I did a session with the, the Canterbury team and I saw Steve Hansen there and said good day. And then the following year, um, I was with Saracens and I just got a phone call out of the blue saying, um, would I be interested in meeting up with the All Blacks team manager because All Blacks had done a 204 and felt that they needed to work work more on this, their kicking and skill sort of areas. Um, and because I'd met Steve Hansen, he'd mentioned my name and through Tony Gilbert, mentioned my name and then Ozzie McLean had been at Canterbury. My name came up in conversation, sort of those three areas. So they came and spoke to me over in over in England. And then uh, they flew me out to New Zealand and I met up with uh, Graham and, and Wayne Smith, who I hadn't met before, but I obviously knew Steve. So I just met Graham and Wayne. And from that meeting, I, I, was, I was offered the opportunity to join them. What's it like so, walking into that environment? Obviously, rugby people are, are the same everywhere you go, but I, you, you've just walked into the most successful sporting team of all time. Probably at that time, they'd gone through a little bit of a downturn by their standards. But, but what was it like being in that coaching staff, walking into the team? Like, Were you intimidated? Were you comfortable? What were your recollections? Yeah, I'm not. I don't really feel comfortable whenever I doesn't matter what team I walk into it. You know, I never really feel comfortable, but I know what you're saying. I wasn't intimidated, but I was certainly on alert. You know, I needed to be, I needed to know what I was doing. You know, you do your prep, you got to do your prep. I learned a long time ago. Um, if you do your prep, then you, you know, you're going to be able to, to, to get the work done. So, um, and I knew, you know, I was an Aussie, um, walking into a New Zealand rugby environment, um, you know, so I knew all those things, but I just needed to make sure, I, you know, I was ready to do my job and, you know, I was confident in what I can do um, and stayed, stayed, really stay focused on the process because your mind can get away from you about what if this doesn't work or what if they don't like what I'm doing and, you know, you have those sort of questions, no doubt, that's just human, but, at the same time, you say, "Well, I, I trust in what I do. What I do, I know works. I've just got to, I've got to have belief in it and um, get on and do the job." And you know, the first couple of sessions was, you know, uh, more challenging for them than me because I was getting them to do stuff they'd never done before. Um, and so I knew what I was doing, and they didn't have a clue. So it gave me a little bit of a, little bit of an upper hand there, but. Uh, they they worked really hard at it as well, and yeah, it was from there on. It was, you know, the being just being able to have challenging conversations with both players and coaches. Um, I think was probably the biggest thing I learnt there. What made those guys good coaches? Well, I think when I when I joined them, they'd all been head coaches, and I think that makes you a better coach. Um, knowing Boy. what you want from your system, I think knowing what you want from the support, you know, like if you if you're a head coach, you, you know you you know what you need. Um, and sometimes if you've been a head coach and then you go back as an assistant, 
then you sort of know what the head coach needs. And I think in our case where Steve Hansen come back from being, you know, a very good, successful coach at Wales and Wayne Smith had been a head coach at the All Blacks and then Northampton came back as an assistant coach. And then Graham's the head coach. These, these guys know what a head coach needs from an assistant coach. They, they, they actually know what, what's required. So they get on and do. They, they make sure that the head coach is never wondering whether the, the, they're doing the work or whether they know what they're doing. Or, and you keep the head coach in the loop. I think that's one of the things that you always want to know. You know, what I'm finding as a head coach, you, you don't like getting surprises from your coaching staff. You know, you, you turn on the track and you're like, oh, what are we doing here? Didn't know we were doing that. That's, that stuff is, you know, and that didn't happen. That, you know, those guys knew as assistant coaches, communicate strongly, share what we're doing, everybody's in the picture, have good clarity and, and everything will work well. And plus they were great at, great at their, their jobs. You know, they're great at what they did. You know, they had great knowledge. They had, um, you, you know, they were ahead of their time as far as what players needed to be doing. You, talk, you, you mentioned having tough conversations. How, how did it work in that, in, in that environment? Was, it, was there a process to deal with disagreements, like Graham being the head coach at the time had the ultimate say? Like, like Was there some kind of process to have that, or was it just a, a general understanding that you, know, you and I disagree with each other, but we're going to talk respectfully but honestly and openly and then come to the best conclusions? Like, Was there a process there? No, I wouldn't say you – yeah, there was, but I wouldn't say it's like a process that you set up and, right, let's get the checklist done here. It was just what you did, you, you know, you you would have a, have honest conversations. And it, the understanding at the end of the day, and Graham made it clear at the start, that he will want to know exactly what your thoughts are and he'll give you every opportunity to talk. But at the end of the day, if we can't, if we can't come together, he'll just make what he called the coach's call. He'll just make the head coach's call. And that was, that was accepted. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you, so, I, I mean, I, I probably, to give an example, you know, in 2008, we, we wanted to change the way we were, were kicking and uh, the ELVs came in. And when the ELVs came in, everybody thought, these new rules were going to open up the game and we're going to get this fast-flowing game of rugby now because the ELVs have come in. And all it did was turn the game into a kick fest. You know, and, and you know, there were games where there were 70 kicks. You know, you go back to those, those, that year of ELVs. There were games where there was, in NPC and different games around the country, there was, around the world, there was like 40 or 50, 60 kicks a game. Um, and I remember sitting down with Graham and, and Wayne and wanting to talk about some thoughts around the kicking game. And we sat down and um, I started talking to Graham and he didn't like what I was saying. And we, we argued away and we debated away and, you know, start eight o'clock came and then nine o'clock came and 10 o'clock came and we're still in the room you know, debating away and Graham said, I think I better open a bottle of Pinot. So he opened a bottle of Pinot and we kept going and I, look, this is absolute the way it happened. And then about midnight, he turns around and he goes, well, yep. Okay. You've, you've got me 
tomorrow morning, I want you to present that to the team. So presented it to the team and we changed a lot around the way we kicked. We did a lot more contestables and a, a range of different things that we brought in. And a few weeks later, we were sitting down at dinner and Graham said to me, well, he said, this seems to be working okay. We're going along okay with this. And he says, good, I like the plan. It's going well. And I said, yeah. I said, on that night, we argued, you know, like it – you know, we were we were there till like midnight with this. You know, what 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 were your thoughts there? You know, like he said, oh no, I, I agreed with you at about eight o'clock. I'd agreed with you. It sounded really good, but I just needed to know you were you you believed it. Yeah, because it's a little bit different. It was it was a little bit different to what we were going to do? He said, but at eight at about eight o'clock when you started talking, it started making sense to me. But I needed to make sure you believed it. So. And I think that's a, that, that conversation that probably the next three hours of, of conversation was like open. There was no arguing. It was like, no, no, I want to, you know, this is what it is. Well, why is that? You know, and it became that sort of honest conversation where nobody's going to have a win. You know, you're, you're explaining, he asked questions, you explained, you asked questions, why that? Did, and then you come up with the answer. And I think that's when you have those sort of, that's what I really learned from that group was have the conversation without trying to win the conversation. Have the conversation so that your thoughts are out, their thoughts are out. And you know what? It's probably somewhere in between is a great place for us. Let the best ideas win. doesn't matter yeah. whose they are. Yeah, exactly. And if, they, if we can't get there, he's just going to make a head coach's call and, and you accept that, you know? And so... We had a real disagree. I know it's a cliched line, but back then, you know, I'd, I hadn't heard it before, you know, back in 2005, we had a real disagree and commit process to it. So we'd leave the room and I mightn't have agreed with it. Um, and when we leave the room, you know, a player might come up to you or someone else might come up to you and say, oh, what are we doing this for? This doesn't make sense. Now, I may have not agreed with it either, but I would say, no, no, this is why we're doing it. We're doing it for this reason. So you had to buy that's into how you, it. That's how you disagree and commit. Don't, yeah. not, not like come out where I've been in some environments in the past where you come out and a coach will go, oh, well, I didn't really, I didn't really agree with it, but, you know, we'll get on and do it. You know, well, that's not disagreeing and committing. Yeah. That's yeah. disagreeing and not committing. So, yeah, there's a real, and I think in that environment, it was a real genuine disagree and commit mentality. You mentioned before that you needed to always constantly try and improve yourself as a coach. How did you, yeah. or how do we as coaches go about doing that? Did you have a process that you would go through to do yearly personal development? Did you talk to people? Did you have mentors? Like, how did you attack it? Well, the first thing I wanted to do was to get better at what I do. Um, and so understanding what I do was probably the first thing. So what I did when I came into rugby was I was a skills coach. I, I'd previously been a head coach in Aussie rules. I'd been head coach of the state team and things like that. And when I started in rugby, I was back being a technician, you know, back being a skills coach. So then I learned, I needed to learn about how the body works. You know, and I'd done, I'd, I'd dabbled in a lot of it previously in, in Aussie rules around the kicking game and trying to understand where your power came from and 
how you generated power. And I think, you know, one of the, the things that had been told to me as a player was that my skill level is really no different to the skill level of a cricketer in the park. If you, you can drive down and watch Saturday afternoon cricket in the local park and you can pull the car up and watch and you'll see a bowler come in and you'll have a nice little action. He'll roll his arm over and the bat, batter will step inside and he'll hook the ball to the fence and it'll be looking perfect perfect hook shot or he might step forward and play on a cover drive and you go, she's that's a great cover drive, you know, and it looks perfect. But the ball's traveling at a hundred kilometers an hour or 110 kilometers an hour. And so, you know, when you look at that perfect technique, etc. but then you watch the test cricketer, the ball's traveling at 150 Ks an hour and he's playing the same shot. It's a different so the difference pressure. between, yeah, the difference between, is not necessarily the technique, but the ability to do it under pressure, time pressure and fatigue. So how do we, therefore, I need to be able to quicken up my skill action. So everything I do, I have to be able to do quicker and more efficiently. So I don't have the time. So the higher up you go in your, in your, in your sport, the less time you have to, to perform the skill. So that was that for me was the first thing I had to learn. So how do you perform? How do you how do you increase the speed of something? So obviously I started looking at bio, you know, this is back in the mid-90s, looking at biomechanical stuff. And something that hit me was force. You know, where does force come from? And how to generate force. And, you know, just working through that and that. That's how I that's how I got better at what I did was understanding how the body generates force, you know, through the, you know, without getting into the big science of it. The first time I'd heard about, you know, the coupling movement of eccentric to concentric, how I go, how do I, how do I become an explosive athlete? And therefore, you know, for a pass, for example, I don't need a big wind up to make a big pass. I can actually punch it off my off my belly button. 12 meters accurately if I learn how to use the joints. So, you know, when, when you look at uh, the force, for example, uh, and torque, they were the two things, force and torque. So the torque being the, the movement of the joints and the force being the movement of the muscle. So how do you combine the movement of the muscle with the movement of the joints? And I just studied that. I, I went away, I just did it. You know, for 12 months, I... You know, and I've got cases and, you know, much to my wife's disgust, I've got, I've got boxes and boxes of paper there, but I've got every paper that was ever written on force and torque, um, you know, to understand how I can generate that explosive power. So that was what I did, but I knew what my role was. So how do I get better at that? If I'm a head coach, now I'm listening to, you know, I'm watching, you know, the savings of the world and, and these guys who have been great head coaches and, and what they focus on. And, you know, I've spoken to other coaches and I listen to other coaches and, you know, I chat through, you know, about the head coach stuff now and understand a little bit more around leadership and, and, and guiding and, and my roles now around being a strategist, a mentor and a facilitator as a head coach. So they are three things I've got to get good at. So, so now I focus in on how I develop those. So, once I know what my role is, I can focus in on how I can get better. 
because the key role is if I can get better, I can help my players get better. Have you enjoyed the head coaching role? Oh, I, I love it. It's been a challenge, no question about it. But, you know, any everything about being involved in professional sports a challenge. Um, from the simplicity of knowing that you're only employed for two years, if that's, if that's your contract. You know, like uh, when I played, I went through that. Um, every couple of years, my career could have been over. Um, as a player, I think you feel a little bit more in control. Um, you know, you feel like, you know, you know you're going well. If you keep working at your sport, you get keep, you know, you know the level of footy you're playing. You keep getting stronger, fitter, faster, more skillful. And if you're playing well, you know that you're probably, if this team doesn't want you, there'll be a team that wants you, you know, if you're still playing good footy. As a coach, you know, you get to the end of your sort of contract time and you're just not sure if there's another team out there that that wants you. Um, so that's a bit cutthroat in the business, but I've been doing it since I was 17. So it's something I sort of just accepted as a way of life. Um, the challenges around the head coach is a lot more involved than than being on the field. So I think I struggled with that last year when uh, I was on the field a bit too much and probably didn't do enough mentoring um, in the role. And so, yeah, uh, I think I've learned from that. But um, I think just being involved in the game, whether you're a head coach or an assistant coach, um, it's challenging, but it's also massively enjoyable. When you say mentoring, do you mean improving your your assistant coach's skill sets as well as your players? Like, is that yeah, something you spend yeah, a bit of time on? Yeah, well, I didn't spend enough time last year. Um, yeah, I spent probably from where I'd come, my my background of being on the field with the players, you know. So, I think you know, working with the staff and 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 you know, mentoring from that perspective and the freedom for them to grow is probably massively important. Um, not probably, definitely is is important. So um, that's an area that uh, you know, when you talk about how do you get better, that's an area that, as a head coach, I can get better at in that area and um, working through that process. Mate, look, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I've just got a few rapid fire questions. Have you got time for just a couple more? Yeah, mate, I've got I've got as much time as you want. So you oh, can, I could I could talk all day. But, well, so could I. If you haven't guessed, but um, <laughs> just mate, I'm happy to I'm happy to go for as long as you want. No problem. Uh, awesome. Well, I, I might d- uh, dig into some of the skill development part just quickly because I know I've got some um, yep. some nerdy listeners who will go. You're talking to a skills coach who's worked everywhere. Let's go into that a little bit. So, listeners, I'm doing that for you and for myself as well. I do want to learn about this. When acquiring a new skill or or honing an existing skill, how do you break that down? So, uh, let's use the scrum as an example. I- I'm a scrum coach. Is it is it a matter of using having body shape under no pressure and then gradually applying more and more pressure until it's as close to game like situation as possible? And, or how do you think about that? What what's the way to break that down? Well, it comes. It, it just comes back to again understanding what you what you need to be doing. So if we look at scrum, for example, we know that our players need to be 
you know, pushing through their glutes. So it's basically a horizontal squat. They need strong back. They need strong neck. They need strong core. So in, in a lot of times when, you, when you're teaching skill, it's not about the will. Like if it just was up to what you wanted to do and it was up to the will of something, I'd be a professional golfer. That's what I, that's what I would do if it was just purely Definitely. for my will. If all my willpower I wanted, because that's all it took. But, you know, I need to be able to swing a little bit better than I swing. So I'm not technically good enough. So it doesn't matter how much will the prop, the prop has. If he hasn't got a strong core, hasn't got a good neck, and all that other work, you can give him great technique and you can say, right, but if he's not strong in certain areas, he's not going to get there. So there's the first thing is understanding what does my body need to do to be able to be good at this? Then it's the technique side of things. And if you're looking at scrum, you know, um, the angles of the, the leg, the knee, how it generates power, you get in behind, is everything in line? You know, so a lot of times it's more comfortable guys. And, and scrum's an interesting one because some players think they're actually stronger in a certain position, but their body's actually stronger and they've got to, you've got to get them used to being strong with, you know, feet, feet, like if you're looking from behind the scrum, you know, the feet, the calves, the hammies, the glutes, the back, sort of got some alignment. Sometimes yeah. they'll drop their feet out. So their, their, their calves are pointing inwards, their thighs come up, point sort of air, and then their, their back's up on it. So once you get all that right, then it's a matter of, of teaching them how to, how to push, you know, and all that. So, you know, for example, we, we might just lean in against a sled and put enough weight on it to be really hard to push, but be able to push, lean in and push. And the first thing you'll see is the sled will come up off the ground. Just, it'll just come up because as they go to push, they might push up a little bit. Yeah. So we'll stay there until that sled stays on. When he pushes, it stays on the ground. There's a whole range of little things like that that you work through in, in the position as a skills coach. But the, the overriding factor for me is an old learning um, philosophy, learning style, which goes back you know 50 years, you know, cognitive, associative, and autonomous. And I think it, it, it gets a lot of things that like this get people try and change it because they want to put their own spin on it. You know, I, I just know it as cognitive, associative, autonomous. I mean, I could sit here today if I wanted to and and if I was writing a book or I wanted to say, I, I'd change it to three different things, but that's the concept. Yeah. So when you learn something for the first time, it's cognitive. You're thinking about it. Then the, as you learn that, you associate that skill to what it is you're trying to do. And then when you've actually mastered it, it becomes autonomous. And I think in rugby, we spend our time in the associative stage. We've never helped our players understand the cognitive, learn. We actually haven't learned the passable. You know, like this, this, I find this fascinating, not fascinating, I find it quite disappointing. When I came to rugby, you know, there's, I, I could probably go to, I mean, at the moment, you go on the internet, there's, there's people all around the internet teaching people how to pass the ball and it's all different. Yeah. But you go onto a golf site, the golf swing is being taught. It's, it's, there is one golf swing. There's not someone getting out there saying, oh no, if you turn your hand here and 
you swing out here and you come through here, make sure you do this. No, the golf swing is the golf swing. Um, and so there is a there is a unique way to pass the ball properly, to generate the power you need to generate. Um, do you think it's so, because rugby people just hadn't thought much about it until until recently? Like, why do you think well, that I, is? Well, I guess when I started as a skills coach, there's no one else was. I didn't know anyone else that was a skills coach. So, I, I, I the first thing I did was, well, I wonder who else is doing this, and there was no one else doing it. So that's why I had to go and look on the internet and different places. But there was no one in rugby as a skills coach. So I didn't have anyone to ring up and go, oh, what are you doing around the skills? So I had to design it all myself, which is fine. But then skills coaches became a bit of a thing. And um, what am I going to do? I'm going to teach players how to pass. Well, the first thing they do is they come up with a drill. Yeah, so, you know, so players love drills, you know. So it could be a 5v3, a 3v2, a you know, a 6v4, whatever, and you do all these drills, the players love them. But if the players have got a poor passing technique, they're actually not going to get any better at their passing technique by playing that game or doing that drill. They'll get better at utilising the skill level they have, but their skill won't improve. Yeah. So, and I think when you talk to coaches and they talk about skill, they've got all the drills in the world. They come up with, oh, yeah, when we want to, we, we do this drill for our passing skills. Well, it's a drill. It's not a skill. So you have to actually go back. And if that was the case, I always sort of, without being arrogant or, you know, egotistical about things, when I talk about, I use golf as an analogy, a lot of skills coaches in rugby, if they were, if they were coaching golfers, they'd just go out and play 18 holes of golf every day. Um and that's what they would do. They would just go and play golf because that's the way we coach rugby. We go out and we, we do drills. Um, but if you watch a good golf coach, he's there, he's got half a backswing, just backswing here, come down to the ball, come down to the ball. That's just part of the golf swing. you know. Or it might be they might have two sticks on the ground. You've got to take the club head back through the two sticks. Well, that's how we should be coaching rugby if we, you know, on our skills. So on the pass, you know, for example... I'll have the I'll have a ball and it might be Adidas on the top or Gilbert, whatever the ball is, and I'll put it on the belly button and they have that that sign has to stay upright until it leaves my body. All right. So most players will start turning the ball straight away. Yeah. But that that sign, that sign has to stay upright. I have to be able to see that sign all the way across my body before it leaves my body. Then I'm going to be passing well. So I, you know, just doing an exercise like that with players will help help improve their pass. So the cognitive level of of the skill acquisition, I think, is massively underdeveloped and and underused in in rugby. Did you find, even getting into the test level, that the skills weren't where they should be? Like, is this something that we should be starting under sixes, under eights? Absolutely. And just, yeah, just spending more time on acquiring the skills and then adding the pressure as they go through the age groups and the levels? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you go to any sport um, that kids are learning and kids are learning technique. It doesn't matter what sport it is. Um, you know, and, and I think we're very good at creating games and we're very good at creating drills 
but we're not actually helping our players pass the ball better. You know, um, you, you know, there there's certain things you can do to kick, pass, tackle, jump, throw, scrum, high ball catch. There's certain things that your body needs to be doing to be really efficient and strong at. And if we're not teaching them those movements, then all we're doing is we're we're just allowing natural talent to come through to the top rather than the natural talent gets you there and then becoming very technically efficient will take you to the next level. How do you structure that into your training? Will you do a skills block beforehand and afterwards? Would you add skills elements throughout your training session and throughout your week? Because obviously once you get into a game week, there's a limited amount of time to prepare for the opposition, you know, go over the detail, all that kind of diff, all that kind of stuff. Plus, you've got to add in the physical demands of the game as well. How did you? How do you attack it? How do you think about it? Well, I think you, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go back to when I started, there were sort of windows of skills. You know, pre-season was a time to work on your skills. Well. Again, I'd just come back to the golf analogy. If that was the case, then you'd only see golfers practicing their golf swing in January and then they'd get out and keep playing. The golf yeah. swing is something they practice every day. So skills are something we need to do every day. And we, we're doing that now. There's no question they're doing that. But even to the point where if you're doing a line-out session, you, know, you could use 20% of that time to get your hookers throwing well, jumpers jumping well, lifters lifting well, um, moving through the line-out well, you could use 20% of your time getting the individual skills of your line-out right before you start your line-out session. So lots of times I'll go watch coaches train, they'll get their line-outs and the players will walk over and they'll start throwing line-outs. It takes them about seven or eight minutes, a few arguments, a few swear words, and suddenly the line-out's functioning. But it took them six or seven minutes to get right. Well, instead of starting a line-out session with all that frustration, Spend the five minutes doing the skills. Get the throwers just throwing some, 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 like what I do is I'll get the hookers on their knees throwing to the locks who are standing there a couple of meters away catching it in their hand. So suddenly the hookers are getting some throws in, the catchers are catching. Then they'll be, they'll be off doing some footwork and the lifters will be doing some medicine ball lifts and they'll come in and they'll lift the locks and then they'll throw to some pods and then they'll start their lineouts. Well, that's all they've done in that five, four or five minutes there is they've worked on their individual skill. So that's how you can do it inside a training week. The backs can start their back session with some, um, you know, some punch passing, some pressure passing, some, some different things working through there. Um, and so then when you can, and at the beginning of training, you might have a core skills rotation, some passing activities, some, you know, where you're learning habit, you're changing habits. So you might do some passing, tackling, some breakdown, some core activities. And then when you finish training, you go into individual plans where that's really individual specific stuff. So you might only have the back three working on high ball catch. Uh, the hookers might be working on some strikes while uh, the scrum halves are working on some uh, box kicking or something like that. So through the course of your, your training, you might start with, you know, we, you can start with a sort of a three minute, three by three minute rotation on skills, three by two minute rotation on skills into team training making sure that even in team, team training, you start with a little skill activity and then you finish training and you're into some skills training. So you can actually incorporate that into every training session. Um, a player 
you know, and 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 again, it comes back to rugby. You know, I go and watch go and watch different different coaches work in different sports, and swimming's a classic. You know, and I watched the swimming coach one year. He actually coached my son, and I watched him, and he had an he had a one-on-one with every player in his squad. Now he had 12 squad members. We have a lot more. But he had a one-on-one. He had probably two or three one-on-ones with every swimmer during a session. So those players, those swimmers would go home from every session with a gem they received from their coach. Um, now, rugby's difficult. We've got a lot more players, but there's no reason why you can't manage that so you can get to every player during the week. Help them with a with a little one-on-one tidbit for their skill you know it also shows that the coach cares which is pretty important for a player yeah and it was interesting watching him because he would he would give the instruction he would make the change and then he'd watch that player do it or he'd watch that swimmer do it and then he'd give feedback on the change and i watch a lot of coaches i'll say to a player no 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 you need to get your feet in here for that tackle and the player will be right so then he'll walk off to somewhere else and you'll see the player this next time you'll do it, you look over to see if the coach is watching and the coach is not watching. You know, so I think it's really important if you are in that skills coaching element that you, if you give a player a tip, watch him do it, give him some feedback on how he just did it. That's better. Or no, maybe a little bit more. Let's have another go. And then when you see it, yeah, that's what you're after. Then move on to your next one um, and be genuinely interested in helping your player get better i think that'll that'll show through to the players as well do you, do you look at other sports much to get to get inside or or to learn anything like particularly starting out i know you had an afl professional afl background how, how important is it for, for coaches just in general not necessarily just rugby but to look outside your sport for inspiration and ideas i think it's really important i think uh I don't know, a classic example would be the All Blacks back in years ago went to ballet um, for lifting, yeah. you know, because... It makes, these... makes sense, doesn't it? Well, you know, you see a lot of people getting lifted in ballet and it's effortless, you know. Um, and so that, and it came back to the jumper having a lot of core strength, you know, that you're lifting someone off the ground. If they are just a rock solid core, it's a lot easier to lift them off the ground. So lifting... There was a focus on the lifter, but suddenly to be a great lift needed the jumper to be a great jumper. So the jumper needed to make sure they engaged the core and stayed rock solid and, and didn't have a sloppy core because they'd be heavier to lift. Little things. So there's always, you're always looking outside. And I, look, I'm a bit of a sports nut and, uh, you know, I'll watch different sports. I'll, you know, I'll see different things, little coaching tips, and can I use that in rugby? You know, what about that? Can I try that? Um, yeah, I'm always sort of looking for something. Mate, I won't take up too much more of your time. Just a couple more questions. What, from your experience, makes a good coach? Um, I think you you got to feel for your players. You've got to have... You know, you've got to have, you know, you, you, can be, you can be a coach that knows every single thing there is about your playing group, which is one way of doing it. And I think that shows that you care. Um, there's, you, you know, there's, there's other ways. Um, I think, 
you know, helping players understand how they can get better, um, being working with your playing group so that they believe you care as well is important. Um, you may care, but sometimes you might not show it the right way. So it's important that they understand that you do care. Um, being good at your job, I think, is important. You know, I think being, you know, working on yourself to be good at your job. Um, and, and, you know, just being, I think also the big one is, you know, being honest. Um, you know, don't play games with with players' minds. You know, don't don't try and be a, pl a person who tries to play with players' minds and be too clever. Just be genuinely upfront and honest with your with your playing group and your staff, and you know, treat treat them with respect. I feel like mind games probably wouldn't work with this generation. No, look, I, I don't. And I, you know, I don't think it worked with any generation. I think, you know, people see through it pretty quickly. And and back when I played, you knew you were getting the mind games were on, but you wanted to be there anyway. You wanted to yeah. be part of it, so you you'd accepted it. You you cop ridiculed. You copped you cop slagging off by the coach. You cop whatever you cop because that's just the way life was. And and you wanted to be there, and you were passionate about playing and you just accepted that that's the way things are at the moment you know um but i think yeah the, uh, and i think also you know the the education that we had coming through when i went through school you got punished for doing the wrong thing so and when you went into sport you got punished for doing the wrong thing and and i'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing but certainly getting punished for doing the wrong thing doesn't necessarily help people do the right thing in the future um, yep. sometimes they just become immune to the punishment and just keep doing it anyway. Um, so I think it's helping people, you know, learn and, and understand why you want them to change or why you want them to be better in education, education. And, and then it's up to the player. If the player, if you've done all your education work and you've, you've helped them grow and they still don't want to be there or still can't come to grips with it, then they miss out. You know, they, they're the ones that are missing out. Um, I think that's, you can't, you know, as they say, you can't save every player, even though as a coach, you, you'd like to think you can. If you could give one piece of advice to a coach just starting out, what would it be? One piece of advice. You can go more than That's one if good. you like. You can go more than one. <laughs> That's a good challenge, one piece. Um, well, I think putting your, putting your your playing group first is a big one, you know, like what, why, why are they turning up? You know, whether you're a club coach, why are your players digging holes in the ground or sitting behind a desk or behind a computer or driving a truck or doing something all day long to come to rugby? Why are they doing that? And understanding why they're doing it and then, and then, and then assisting that to be the reason why they turn up. You know, if they're doing it because they love the game of rugby. They want to get better. Um, they want to have fun. Then, then you've got to be the driver of that. Um, if you've got a group of players that just want to become the best in the world because they're already good players and um, they want to learn, they want to come to training and they want to be challenged and they want to get better, then you've got to give them that. 
So understanding what it is that your playing group, why, why, are they, why are they there and what do they want to get from the group? Why are they doing things? I think that's a good place to start. And also understand yourself, why are you doing it? You know, understand, you know, what it, what it is that you're getting from it as well so that you can always make sure that you keep enjoying it as well. What's your relationship like with failure? Um, well, I've got a saying on my wall at home that failure cannot cope with perseverance. So Love that. that would be, that would be my relationship with failure. Um, it's just an everyday part of my life that, um, but I'll just get up and go again tomorrow because failure won't be there at the end of the day. Um, it, it, it can't cope with perseverance and that, that came that was a saying that Alan Jeans used to say when he was coaching me at Hawthorne back in the, the 80s. And it was something that I put up on the wall because, you know, it's probably something I wasn't good at when I first started playing was if I couldn't do something, I, I lost enjoyment by not being able to do. And once I realized that uh, if I stick at it, I'll probably be able to do it. Um, and that's just stuck with me now and it's up on my wall at home and, you know, it's, it's just there for me. So my relationship with failure is it's an everyday part of life, but it can't cope with perseverance. Failure can't cope with perseverance. I love that. I love that. Look, one of the, one of the many great things about doing this podcast is I've got to learn a lot as well. And, uh, I was lucky enough to do a podcast with Wayne Smith and I, I asked yep. him, what, what was it like when you wanted to try new things with the All Blacks? I can imagine that you would have wanted to know it worked before you tried it. And he said, I, I, we didn't think like that at all. We, were, we weren't afraid to try new things. And some things worked, some things didn't work. But that was the attitude that we have. And we, we weren't afraid to try things. And um, that totally flipped my own relationship with failure because I, I, I'm only a brand new coach. But starting out, I was quite afraid of making mistakes and, and just that simple message just changed the the way that I think about it as well. So I really, really appreciate you sharing that, mate. Thank you. Yeah. And, and mate, I think when you are trying something new, one of the things that, because I tried a lot of, I tried a lot of new things with the All Blacks because they hadn't, hadn't coached doing what I was doing when I got there. So that was a good thing for me because I was doing stuff for the first time. But I've also put a bit of pressure on because a lot of players are there like, oh, oh, what are we doing this for? Or why would we, why are we doing this? So the one thing I asked from them is to give 100% commitment to trying something new. Then we can be 100% correct in the decision we make. If you only go half-hearted because it's something new and you don't really believe in it, we'll never really know if it works. So the only thing we ask for is go at this at a hundred mile. If it's something, if it's a new jumping technique, if it's a new kicking stuff, if it's a new throwing, if it's new something, if it's, we want to try this, let's go at a hundred mile an hour, give it 100%. And then if it doesn't work, we know it doesn't work. And we can, we can look at each other in the eye and say, this is not going to work. We've just given it everything we've got. And I think that's important when you're trying something new, give it everything you've got. Um, and if it works, then great. You found a new, you found something new to work with. I think it's it's such a helpful helpful lesson for anyone to learn. You you 
you don't start out knowing everything and, and sometimes making mistakes can really help you learn. And that's something that I found incredibly useful in my young career as a coach. So a couple more questions, mate. Do, do you listen to any podcasts, read many books? Do you have any recommendations oh, not, for us? Well, I mean, books, I sort of read a few. Um, I know that going back a long time now, um, Stephen Covey's, um, you know, Habits, Seven Habits of Successful People, that's that's a strong one. Um, also, I liked uh, Seligman's Learned Optimism. Yeah. Um, Tim Galway's in The Inner Game of Tennis. I haven't read that one. Is, I might download that next. Yeah, that's a, that's a, if you want to understand what goes on inside your head when you're competing and, and how you can control, it, it was the first book that sort of was a bit spooky when I read it. I was like, sounds a bit weird because he, he talks about self one and self two, you know, uh, one's a doer and one's a talker. And the talker never talk, never talks positively to you. The talker's always telling you you can't do it or don't, you know, watch this. If you miss this line out, we could lose the game, you know. Whereas the one, he just does, you know. And I think it's a matter of control. And when you when you look back on it now, when I look back after I read that book and you look back on it now, you realise that so accurate, you know, the, the things that go on inside your head before you've even tried something. Um, you, you know, uh, and he, I have a bit of fun with it. You know, you'd be on a golf course. Oh, what about that bunker over on the right there? The bloke goes, oh, I didn't even see that bunker, you know, and you point little things out like that, you know, and all of a sudden you you put a little negative thought into his head. So don't <laughs> play golf with me, mate. It's not enjoyable. <laughs> mate, I don't think you'd enjoy playing with me. I am terrible at golf. Uh, mate, uh, last last question for you, mate. I Thank you so much for this. I truly, truly appreciate your time. Um, looking back to 18-year-old Mick Byrne, what advice would you give him, if any? Uh, I'd give him a lot, mate. To, to be fair, I'd give you, I'd give him stuff that I probably can't share here, but I'd certainly give him the, the advice to don't be self-conscious around making mistakes. Um, don't worry what people think of you. Um, you know, and what I've done there is use the word I've probably learnt the most is get rid of the word don't, um, because I think that's what held me back for a long time. Um, is the word don't is used by parents, coaches alike, and we should get rid of that out of our vocabulary. Um, because if I'm coaching a player and I say to him, "Don't plant your feet in the tackle." What picture is he? What picture is he seeing in his head? Planting your feet in a tackle. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's what I was like as a kid. I was don't do this and don't do that and don't stuff this up or don't stuff that up. And I was saying it to myself, so I wouldn't do it. If I was to say to my eighteen-year-old self again, I'd say, just tell yourself what it is you want to do. Yeah. Tell yourself what you're going to do. So, don't worry about the don't. Don't do this. What is it you want to do? And talk to myself in that way. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Do this, do that. And get rid of the 
the protection element. And, and I, it's not a negative element. People look at it as a negative element. I think it's a protection element. Parents use it a lot to protect their kids from harm. But in actual fact, they're putting the picture of that. So don't run across the road. You, you know, that's what, the kid, that's what they'll say to their, their kids. But the kids see run. The kids don't actually know what it is you want them to do. What is what it is you want? What it is? What is it that you want your kid to do? I want him to walk. Well, tell him to walk. Avoid saying "Don't run," because that's not what you want him to do. What is it you're wanting to do? I want him to walk. Well, tell him to walk. And that's what I'd say to myself. Get rid Beautiful. of the "Don't run" and start telling myself to walk. It's good advice. Good advice for coaches as well. Mick, thanks so much for your time, mate. I really enjoyed that. Uh, pleasure, mate. Anytime. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, if you did, please make sure you rate the podcast if you're listening on Spotify or Apple. All the five-star ratings help. If you're not going to give it a five-star, don't rate it. Uh, please subscribe on Facebook. That helps as well. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, and tell someone about it. Word of mouth is still the best marketing that there is. And... Yeah, that's all I got for you guys. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We'll be back in the next couple of weeks for further editions of the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast in the world. Have a great week. Great to see you and bye.